Amen. So, one of the, um, the great things um, about being a part of such a great ministry with such a, a great history and then being in Brooklyn uh, is having the opportunity to have really, really great leaders come through this place and stand at this pulpit and share the word of God. And it was probably 10 or maybe 12 years ago that I first met Beth Greco, and uh, she was uh, then leading and serving and, and directing at, uh, at uh, the Walter Hoving Home, which is in Garrison, and, um, um, and, and always just a servant heart, uh, doing amazing things. And then uh, through the process of time, uh, little by little, got to know a little bit about her family and uh, obviously a little bit about the Walter Hoving Home. But the Walter Hoving Home was founded by John and Elsie Benton in, uh, in 1967. And prior to that, uh, many people may not know, but they were actually on staff here and worked with David Wilkerson uh, in the early days and even was the director of the women's home at the time and ultimately moved the women's home because of some things that God did in opening up the door through a man named Walter Hoving to have this beautiful, beautiful campus in Garrison, New York. Uh, and then in the process of time, God led uh, the late John Benton to not only have Garrison, but also open other locations as well. And, uh, and he passed recently and has left in such an amazing legacy. And he's a man who was as humble and as kind and as a good-hearted person that you would ever meet in your entire life. And I know that as a leader, one of the greatest joys that you can have is to be leaving things in the hands of somebody who is more than capable, uh, but has such an incredible heart for uh, the ministry itself. And uh, so Beth has uh, come up through the ranks, graduating in 92, I think, uh, herself and staying with Teen Challenge and leading. Uh, her husband, Tim, is a whole other enigma because he has had an acting career, has been on Broadway, he's been a reporter, he's, uh, he's done TV shows. Uh, I don't even know what all, he's probably got musical albums out there and written books and, you know, discovered cures for diseases that we don't even know about. Uh, and he's also a pastor, really, they co-pastor a church in upstate New York, New York. And so not only is she overseeing, you know, four centers like nationwide and their past pastoring a church. And then they go and they raise a son who I've met before, had played golf with at their golf tournament. Uh, and this guy goes and he becomes a pilot. And then he goes to school in Arizona to be an aerospace engineer. I know we all are just like, oh, we feel a little bit less about our life right now. <laughs> but... I say that just to say this is the kind of people that they are. They have, uh, they're great people, great individuals who, in everything they do, they shoot for the stars. And so we're so grateful to have them here. Can we give a very warm Brooklyn Teen Challenge welcome to Pastor Beth and Tim uh, tonight as she comes to share the words. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Will. Mary, we love you guys, and we love being in Brooklyn tonight. What a, what a joy it is. It was an easy ride in, so that always makes it nice to be able to travel in with no traffic. So we were thrilled by that today. So I'm glad my husband um, joined me tonight. So wave so they know who you are, hon. So. <laughs> and um, I'm really pleased that some of our staff and graduates, and so everybody that has been a part of Hoving Home, just raise your hand or if you are still. So thrilled that they could come with me tonight. 
And, um, and I got surprised by a couple of them, so I'm thrilled that, that you could be here. So, Father, we just ask over the next few minutes that, Lord, you would fill this place with your wisdom, your discernment, your understanding, and your knowledge. Lord, we can never get enough of you or your word. And so, Father, to not fill our lives in a way that changes us, transforms us, and causes us to live in a way that brings you honor. God, we are grateful that we're alive today in your name. Amen. Amen. One of my favorite parts of scriptures in is Ephesians 2. It says, and you, were ma- and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. How many of you can relate to that? We were dead, right? In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. And here's my favorite part. But God, who was rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. And then he raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We see brokenness all around us, don't we? Life is just broken. And without Christ, there is just no hope for a better future. Life is broken by the effects of sin, by the choices that we make. Many are broken because they've been hurt by those who they were supposed to have received love from. Hurt by parents, friends, spouses that have deserted them. Death. Broken because of our past failures. Broken because we failed to live up to the expectation of others. I'm going to share with you a little bit of my story tonight. My life was broken when Jesus stepped into it. Used drugs for the first time when I was nine years old. Had a relative take me to a party. A lot of older people there, and my life began to take a turn. I got the first taste of cocaine, and I liked it. I liked the taste of alcohol. I liked the way it made me feel. And my life forever was turned. My future was altered, and I didn't even know it. And it was in that moment that I learned two things. That I didn't have to feel afraid anymore, and I felt accepted. I was hooked. Now, it wasn't an everyday occurrence. I was nine years old, and I had parents who loved me and didn't live a life like that. So far from that, my stepfather was military, and uh, my mother was a nurse. And they were solid, solid people. I'd been in the church since I was born. Um, I, I grew up in the South. I'm not from New York. I don't know if you could tell that or not. But I grew up in, in Texas. And, um, and so I went to church all the time. It was the Bible Belt. I actually didn't realize people didn't go to church till I moved to New York. 
Uh, everyone I knew went to church. It was a very social thing for us to do. It's what you did, and so I did that. But I wasn't changed by it. In fact, I can remember having a Bible closet. And so we would come home from church, and we would all have to go take our Bibles and put them in a cabinet so that we didn't get them dirty or lose them or tear them up until we went back to church. I actually didn't think you could read the Bible if you weren't in church because I had never done it. I hadn't seen it done. And, um, and so, you know, it was just a social thing. We went a lot. I was in youth group. I was involved. I was in kids ministry, VBS. I went to Bible camp every year. I, I've been baptized. This is really ridiculous. I have been baptized nine times in my life because I would get saved like every summer at Bible camp. And um, I remember one summer I came back and I had gotten saved at Bible camp. And my granddad, who was a deacon, I told him about Jesus and he got saved and we got baptized together that year. I just grew up social, social church. And um, so it wasn't like drugs were a part of my life every day, but I had gotten a taste. And so I began to live this double life. So I had a mom and stepdad. And um, there was stability and there was love, but there was a high, a, a really high expectation of what I would be. I excelled in school. I did what I was supposed to do. And then I had my dad and my stepmom, who were a little looser, who didn't really supervise too well. And so I was kind of tossed between them. So there was fun and parties and no boundaries. So I, I liked them both. I liked the stability and love, but I, I liked to have fun and I liked to have no boundaries. And so I just began to live a double life. And I did that for many years. And drugs was not all consuming by that point. It was just dabbling. And I would, I would experience, you know, when I had it in front of me, I did it. But I, I sure wasn't addicted at that point. But I went to college when I was 17. And I moved away. I was ready to be a grown-up. I was ready to be on my own. And the very first night at college um, was the first time I blacked out. And this was in 19, I'm trying to think of my age, 1988 that I was, I was um, in college. I was starting on my own that first night I blacked out. That first semester in college, I don't remember anything. I drank and I used drugs nonstop. But it was October 31st of 1988 that I had one of the worst experiences of my life. I knew when it happened that it was going to forever change me. But I was using drugs. I was drinking that night. I took something and began to hallucinate. I woke up the next morning. And I now lived with voices in my head. And overnight, I had become insane. Everything from that night changed. By this point, I was caught up with a boyfriend who was part of a satanic cult. I began to follow him and his example. Drugs and alcohol began a daily thing. Um, all the time, I drank and, and used all the time. I began to get arrested. I began to go to jail. I had a very expensive habit. And over the next three years, I never had over 30 days of sobriety unless I was in jail or in a program. 
I cut myself off from everyone who cared about me. I didn't talk to my parents. I didn't talk to my siblings. I moved from house to house, friend to friend, boyfriend to boyfriend. I lived in apartments or in couches and car. New friends never lasted long because I stole from them or betrayed them. And when all my problems would get too bad somewhere, I would just move. I would just pack up and go. And so for over three years, I was in 12 short-term programs. I had had three visits to the state psychiatric hospital in Texas. And in December of 1991, I was involved in a crime involving a bank. FBI was searching for me. I decided to go to Colorado and go snow skiing. And it was my intention that this would be the last trip of my life and I was going to kill myself. So a few people, we loaded up the car, we traveled all night, got there. My plan was to go on the hardest trail on the slopes and just go off the edge. And as I was going down on those slopes, I realized I had no control over my skis. None. I couldn't even turn to go over the edge. I got to the bottom and I stopped and I was angry and I was frustrated and I was confused. All I wanted to do was die. And I could not understand why I couldn't die. I had attempted numerous times. I shook off my skis. I went to my car. I loaded up. I drove back to Texas. I left everyone that had traveled with me in Colorado. And I spent the night in my car drinking, sit, sitting outside of my parents' house with a gun in my lap, trying to decide if I was going to kill myself, who I was going to kill. I had so many voices. I was so insane. I was so messed up. And in the midst of sitting there in that dark neighborhood, with a gun in my lap, drinking, I just heard a whisper that said, your life is not over. It's time for me to help you. I didn't really know what that meant. Um, I had a lot of voices in my head. But this one was louder than all the others. So I drove to an emergency room with a gun in my hand. And I walked into the hospital and I laid it on the desk and I said, I'm going to kill someone if I don't get help. That gets you in really, really quick. <laughs> I mean, super quick, even way back then. And um, got in pretty quickly. And within days, I was back at the Texas State Psychiatric Hospital. This time, I didn't think I'd ever leave. I'm not even sure that I cared if I ever left. On December 23rd that year, I got a visit from a youth pastor. I'd been in his youth group as a young teenager, and he heard I was back in the hospital. My grandparents still went to his church. And he had a psychiatrist friend with him, and they were talking to me, and they said, do you want to try one more thing? We think we might have found something that can help you. And um, I told them that if they wanted to try and then talk my doctors into it, I'd give it a shot. Because I knew I had two choices. I could stay where I was. They could medicate me for the rest of my life. At this point, I was 21 years old. I could stay in there for the rest of my life. I knew that that was a choice. Or I could give it one last shot to possibly have my life change. See, I knew there was a God. Even though I didn't have a relationship with him, I was familiar 
with the concept of God. And I knew there was one. And I also knew I had turned really far from it. And I really didn't know if redemption was possible. When you start to get involved in cults and, and the, the satanic church, things happen that you don't know if you can come back from. I didn't even know if redemption was possible for someone like me. And so they began to work. I actually, my first call was to Teen Challenge of Fort Worth. That's what they found for me. And I got on the phone, and the guy said, well, we'll accept you, but there's about a four- to five-month wait. And I said, well, I think I'll probably um, not be able to wait that long because by that point I knew I would be pretty medicated and unable to even function. He said, but there's a place in New York that has beds sometimes, so you could try that. I was a Texas girl. I never had a desire to leave Texas. Like when you are born in Texas, you love the state of Texas. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. But I called. I didn't qualify for the program, not with the, the series of issues that I had. I didn't. I was talking to the intake director. I can remember it as clear as day. And she said, you don't qualify for our program, but I believe God is telling me to let you in. She goes, but I don't have the authority to do that. So call me back. Called her back a couple hours later. The director gets on the phone. She said, you don't qualify for our program, but God said you're supposed to come. And they took a chance on me. Took a one-way flight. My church gave me a one-way ticket to New York. I wasn't sure. <laughs> a little rejection, right? One way, don't come back. But I got on that plane. And I remember being picked up at the airport. And um, I was at Newark. And did I mention I was from Texas? So we wear really cowboy boots and really big belt buckles and cowgirl hats, because I was rodeo for a lot of years. And I got off the airplane, and I thought, I don't know if they'll recognize me or not. <laughs> and they grabbed me very quickly. And I got, uh, we're, we're driving um, to Garrison, which is about an hour and a half from Newark Airport. And we turned a left into our property. And as soon as we do, did, something happened inside of me. I can't explain it. I didn't know what it was at the time. But something happened. And there was a, just a moment of, this is going to be different. It's hope. I hadn't experienced it in so long. But something just ignited. I had no idea how it was going to happen. I had no idea how it was going to work. But I just knew it ignited in that moment. And I thought, maybe this time will be different. Maybe, just maybe, my life can be a little bit different. So we do probably a lot of what you do. We do a lot of scripture memory. It took me um, about three weeks to memorize the scripture, Luke 137, for nothing is impossible with God. My mind was gone. It was so hard to memorize that. And I studied and said, I had done so much damage to myself. But I read it every day. I, I carried it around. And when I felt like it was too much, I just, that's that one scripture held me for those first three weeks. And still to this day, when life gets overwhelming and looks too big to handle, I go back to that simple scripture. Nothing <laughs> is impossible with God. 
There were some things in my life that changed very quickly. And then there were some things that I never thought would change. But I began to develop this relationship with Jesus. And in that, everything began to build on that simple foundation. It was not easy. There's a scripture in Nehemiah that I love. It says, it's in 4.10. It says, meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there is so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. That's what life looked like to me every day. It looked like there was just rubble. My life was just all over the place. There were pieces everywhere. And I would pick something up and I would deal with it. Then I'd look down and there were so many more. And some were super heavy. And it didn't look like it would ever be rebuilt. And I could not believe that I had destroyed my life, that I had so many pieces of rubble. And I had a really, really difficult time visualizing a future. I would hear scriptures like Jeremiah 29, 11, that for I know the plans I have for you. But man, I had a hard time seeing that there was a future. There was just so much rubble. But I, I began to notice something, that every time I felt like I couldn't go on, there would be someone next to me helping me pick up the pieces. That's what I love about our ministry, is that I was never in this alone. That every time I turned around, someone was offering an encouraging word. Somebody was offering to help. Someone was helping me memorize scripture. Someone was praying for me or someone was counseling me. Someone was just helping me. And I remember well the day that I came to a real crossroad. I, I had a lot of, of mental health issues. I, I was, had been heavily medicated from a, lo a long time and I was coming off of a lot of that medication. I've been diagnosed as, as um, split personality with schizophrenic tendencies. Um, and, and I was coming to a crossroad because the voices were getting louder and they were having to decide if I would be able to stay or not. I was, I was scaring people sometimes, especially in my sleep. And they were trying to decide if this was a place that I, I, they could help me or if I would need to be transferred. And I remember the director calling me in at the time. And, um, and she asked me, she took me to the scripture where Jesus is, is talking and he says, do you um, want to be well? And he re she remembered that story. And, and she asked me, she said, do you believe you can be well? I said, I don't know. I was just being honest with her. I had no idea if someone like me could be well. And she said these life-changing words to me. She said, even though you don't believe it yet, I am going to stand in the gap and believe it for you until you believe it and your life is going to change. And they began to pray for me over the next few days. And they would bring me in and just pray for me and ask God to heal my mind and ask him to touch me. And one day when we were sitting there and we were praying, something incredible happened. And I was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I didn't know what it was in the time. And I got a little scared. But something happened. And I was filled with the Holy Spirit. And I began to speak in tongues. And I began to have this spiritual language. And everything began to shift for me. And, and they were just praying for me. And I began to pray. And when we got done, for the first time in years, I had no voices in my head. I had been delivered. I mean, delivered. And for the first time in years, I felt sane. 
And I decided then that I wanted to live. And I decided then, and I didn't know how it was going to happen, that I would dedicate my life telling others that even though they didn't believe they could be well, I would believe it for them. The road was not easy. I finished the program. Upon completion, I had to go back to federal prison. Like I told you earlier, the FBI was looking for me. I committed some crimes. But I was changed. I was renewed. And I remember going before the judge and, and him sentencing me. And, and, you know, your hope is that it will all get disappeared and we will all cheer and God's great. But, you know, God's great, too, even when you go back to prison, right? And um, because our circumstances don't change who he is, right? So he's still great. And so I began to apply. I'd been in jail before as a non-Christian, but I began to apply what I had learned in the midst of prison. And I got a letter while I was sitting in there from John Benton, our founder, and, um, and it said, when you get released, you come back and work for me. And so I got released a, a little bit later, and I got on a bus and went back to New York and showed up and said, John had given me a job. <laughs> he hadn't told anybody else, though. <laughs> so he gave me a job. The staff thought he was crazy. I wasn't the easiest student. How many of you are difficult sometimes? It's okay. It's okay. I was tough. You got to learn to submit. Maybe you have to go back to prison to learn how to submit. I did, but hopefully you won't have to. But I began working at the home. I began working there at the very end of 93. And, um, and I, I kind of, I've worked every job. And I always tell um, the women, I said, you know, I got transferred around a lot, but it, cause it wasn't because I was so good. It was because I was really bad at most of the jobs. And um, I would go and I would set my resignation on John's desk. And I would say, you know, this job's not really working for me. Um, yeah, I'm not really good at it. I don't really, it's not really in my vein of gifts. <laughs> and he would be like, let's try something else. Let's try something else. Let's try something else. And we did that through almost every job in the ministry until he put me in a place where I knew I had found what God called me to do. And that was in the business part of the ministry. You know business is still ministry, don't you? And I began to do that, and I began to thrive in that. And, and over the years kind of have um, stayed and you know, people ask me, how did you become the, the CEO? I said, I stayed longer than everybody else. <laughs> but really, God chose that. You know, I look back, and I think I had no qualification. I have no education. I went to college for one semester and flunked out. I, I have no education for what I'm doing. I have probably the least likely person to take the ministry from a man like John Benton. But sometimes God just does what God does. And he, said he takes the foolish things to confound the wise, right? I've worked really hard. I've, I've learned as much as I can. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God can change the life of even those that are the most desperate. I believe and I have experienced that Christ can give the depressed joy. He can heal the sick. He gives sanity to the troubled mind. He gives strength to the weak. He gives freedom to the addicted. But he does that through a relationship with him and then a relationship with others. You know, in Nehemiah, they found themselves in the midst of rubble. 
And some of it was from their own doing. And some of it was from the doing of others. They were depressed, they were destitute, and they were unable to face this daunting task of rebuilding the wall. And I think that's what our ministries do. We help people face this daunting task of rebuilding their lives. And we get to be a part of that. We get to help others lift the rubble while they help us. We get to inspire each other. I would not be alive today, and I am convinced of it, if it had not been for Christ in a place like the Hoving Home. Because of the willingness of some people that gave up their lives to work sometimes for almost nothing, 24-7, with people that didn't appreciate it. And they believed that when someone can't believe it for themselves, they're going to believe it and stick with them until they change. My life 27 years ago did not look like there was a future. The courts had given up. The doctors had given up. My family had given up. My parents had given up. But God brought me to a place that wouldn't give up. And he's brought you to that place that won't give up. And so today, the wife of a pastor, mother to an amazing son, CEO of a ministry, a client to a CEO, only God can do that, right? Only God. I don't say that to brag. I say that so you'll say, look what God has done. Look what Jesus can do with a life surrendered. You know, one of the challenges that I really had when I was trying to find freedom the world's way is the whole concept of once an addict, always an addict. I, I just struggled with it. And um, a few years ago, I was really praying to the Lord, you know, what... what what does that mean? You know, your word says that we're free. Your word says that we're new. Your word says this, but, but the world defines us as something else, right? You know, I was reborn. I was redeemed. And my life was redefined by a loving God. So I'm going to give you an acronym that I use often for the word addict. And I'm fine if people say, once an addict, always an addict, because I just tell them what my definition is. Because A, I am alive in Christ. D, I am delivered by his hand. D, I am determined by faith. I am incredible by design. I am covered by his blood, and I am transformed by his grace. So, okay, I'm an addict, but I have redefined what that means. Because as an addict... I've been redefined by a loving father who said I was different than the way I was living. He saw something, and then he gave the eyes to someone that could help me to see something in me that I could not see in myself. He rescued me. He rescued me. He can rescue you. It only takes asking and surrendering to what he offers. It's not easy. If anyone told you that, they lied to you. 
It's not easy to change your life. It's not easy to surrender to Christ. It's not easy to die to yourself and do some things that your flesh doesn't want to do. There's nothing easy about it. But I have never been more alive since I've known Jesus. Life has never been so full since I came into relationship with him. Relationships were restored. Hope was restored. My family was restored. God gave me new things when I let go of old things, new friends and new places to be and experiences. I have got to do things that I never dreamed of being able to do. I have been out of the country. I have preached in places. I have spoken to, to audiences. I've been to the White House multiple times in the, the last couple of years. Only God can do that. And I'm not special. He does it because of who he is. It's very little to do with me. I do one thing, I surrender. And I just say yes. Um, I was thinking this week, somebody asked me, aren't you ever afraid? I said, I think I live afraid. Because <laughs> sometimes God just gets asked me to do things, and I'm like, okay, God, I don't think I can. I'm afraid. But I just hear him all the time say, do it afraid. Just do it afraid. Just go do it. Be afraid, but do it anyway. Walk through it. It's okay. Go. That's what courage is, right? Doing it anyway when I'm afraid. And he's always with me. But he wants to redeem you, and he wants to redefine your life by you being born again. So there's a few things that we have to do. You know them. You have to acknowledge God as the creator of everything. Accepting our, our humble position in his order, right? It says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. We must acknowledge God's power and his authority as the creator of everything. And then we got to recognize we're sinners. I don't know about you, but that was not hard for me. It was pretty obvious I was a sinner. And that we need forgiveness. I didn't think I was worthy of it, but none of us are worthy of it. Not under his standards. It says we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus give, gave us a way to be forgiven of our sins. He showed us his love by giving us the potential for life through what he did, through the cross. If we remain sinners, if we remain stubborn in our ways, we will die. However, if we repent of our sins and accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, Savior we would have eternal life. And I'm telling you, living for eternity is a lot easier than living for the temporary. And it's a lot more satisfying. So we have to confess that he is Lord. We must believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. And that we're saved. 
There's no religious formulas or rituals that we have to do to be saved. We just have to confess and believe that he's God, that he loves us. It says in Romans 10, 13, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Saved, rescued, right, for all eternity. And I know probably most of you in here know Jesus. But I know I sat in church for a really long time, most of my life, and didn't know Jesus. And you can know him tonight. His word says that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that everything can change for you. Because you surrender your life to him. Why don't you stand for a moment? You know, we've all sinned and deserve God's judgment. But the Father sent his only son to satisfy that judgment for those that believe in him. Jesus lived a sinless life, and he loved us so much that he died for our sins. He took our punishment. He was buried, and he rose from the dead, according to the Bible. If you truly believe and trust this in your heart, you receive Jesus alone as your Savior, declaring Jesus as Lord. Then you'll be saved from judgment, and you'll have eternal life. And that's just where it begins. This journey's incredible. With Jesus, I would have never imagined that a broken, tore up, insane girl could walk into a relationship with a loving God and everything would change. God can do more. Jesus can do more in a moment than anyone can do in a lifetime. If you're sick, he can heal you. If you're depressed, he can give you joy. If you're addicted, he can free you. If you're insane, he can make you sane. Because he is a God that can do more with a word than we can do with working hard our whole life. Quit striving. He's here tonight, and he wants to set us free. Father, in this place tonight, deal with our hearts. Deal with our minds. Lord, restore us. Call us into salvation and repentance, God. Help us, Lord, to rebuild the rubble in our lives and let it start tonight. God, let us confess and repent. We recognize that we cannot do this without you that you alone are God and that we are dependent on you. And that, Lord, as we walk in that, everything changes for us. And, God, I just pray, Lord, that you would let your spirit flow through this place, that salvation would come, and that hope would be ignited. I thank you, God, that tonight you're going to set people free. Tonight you are going to heal. 
Tonight, Lord, you're going to baptize with your spirit. Tonight, Lord, you're going to set the mind at ease of some that have been struggling. Lord, it's tonight. All you have to do is speak the word. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.